Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this episode of Democracy Sausage. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Andrew Hughes. I'm a researcher in the Research School of Management here at ANU. I specialize in marketing um, and political marketing. And if you're hearing my voice, it is because our esteemed host, Dr. Mark Kenny, is he a doctor? I don't think he is. I'll give him the title anyway. Um, he's currently away on holidays, um, enjoying himself somewhere. So he's probably not even listening right now. Good on you, Mark. You enjoy the break. Um, but I have some special guests with me this week to discuss some of the more important issues in the week of politics. So with me this week and my first guest is... May Azizi, Director of Media and Communications at Anglicare Australia. Fantastic. May, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be in the room with you. And Shirley Leach, I'm a professorial fellow in the Australian Studies Institute here at ANU. There we go. Fantastic guests I've got with me today. And we've got to start off... And with a bang, you might say, and I think it's a really relevant topic we've seen put in the news this week, um, based around this conversation we've had about the new start allowance, steaming rates, mm -hmm. um, about the less advantaged people in our society who are struggling right now. We talk about cost of living. Some people just struggle to make ends meet every single day. If you've ever been on Newstart, it is a terrible thing to be on because it really makes you feel as though you're bottom of the food chain in Australia. So... Um, to talk about how this narrative has been discussed in our media this week and in politics in particular, the way I think some political parties have approached this, we've seen the coalition be very firm and say the best way we can look after people on Newstart is to give them a job. Mm. Labor initially had their um, motion where Newstart allowance in the Senate was put up for an increase and the Labor went, hey, we're going to side with the government on this one, but then have changed their tune this week. And now we've got the trending hashtag on Twitter anyway, of increase the rate. May, what are your thoughts on how this conversation has sort of evolved over the week about the discussion on poverty in general and people on Newstart? Yeah, I, it's really interesting because um, this this line that um, the the best form of welfare is a job that we've heard the government, um, re, you know, repeating, uh, not just this week, actually, I've been fond of saying it for a, uh, a couple of years now. Um, it's, it's not borne out by... Um, the, the lived reality of anyone who's on Newstart. So we've done a lot of research on, at Anglicare Australia on um, what people actually need to do to survive. Um, we know that the way cost of living is measured um, actually, um, it's it's quite deceptive because things like the cost of housing, the cost of food, the cost of transport, the cost of childcare are kind of weighted equally to a whole lot of consumer goods and holidays and things that you don't actually need to live. And so it looks like the cost of living, you know, is stable or sometimes going down, sometimes going up a little bit, but actually the costs of the things that you actually need to survive are going up all the time in Australia. Um, and so with Newstart stagnating for so long, that's been hurting 
hurting a lot of people. One of the things I thought was really interesting last week was um, the Labor MP, the backbench Labor MP, um, Mike Freelander um, from the Western Suburbs said he did his he he's been meeting with constituents and community groups and has done some of his own calculations and found that the minimum it would need to be a week for someone to live in a room in a share house or a boarding house and um you know survive have it have a decent quality of life um is $400 a week wow. um yeah so it's currently uh 275 a week yeah um and i th- i thought that was really interesting and i think these periods right after elections where you do see um you do see MPs putting their names to things um, in a way that you you know you don't see at sort of other points of the electoral cycle is is really interesting. Um, we've seen a couple of Labor MPs come out. We saw Barnaby Joyce, of course, um, last week come out, um, and I think um, all of that is really interesting. I think you you wouldn't have I suspect we we'll go back to seeing a lot more discipline from the parties in in a year or so. But I think um, that's been the really crucial thing. You've got a couple of people who are really willing to go out there, put their names to what they're saying, put a number on it and really do some advocacy from the backbench. And that's been, I think. And and on that note too about Barnaby Joyce, one of the things that has struck me the most in the last week is hearing the facts and figures about people who are disadvantaged in Australian society. It's sort of breaking the stereotype in people's minds, I think, out there in the general community that someone on Newstart is a dole bludger, basically. Mm. That horrible term we have to, you know, really categorise someone who may have just, through circumstances or life in general, ha- you know, they need to be on welfare or have no other choice but to be on welfare. Um, and I think it was the really interesting figures out during the week saying the the people at greatest risk of homelessness in Australia are women in their late 40s to yes. early 50s. And they're the same category of people who are basically um, having to be on Newstart for extended periods of time because mm-hmm. they often have been into um, care raising of children. They've had a bad marriage or breakdown of family circumstance. They're really disadvantaged. And you, to hear that, it really breaks a lot of myths, I think, in people's minds that the dole bludger is someone surfing in Byron Bay right now. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Your, your average person on Newstart is actually uh, more likely to be in their 50s. Um, so, you know, I think it, it tells you a bit about the, the point in your life. You might you might have had a previous job. You might have had a previous career, something maybe entry level or low skilled that's um, disappeared. And it's quite hard at that at that age, even if you've reskilled, to find someone who'll take a chance on you and, and give you work. Now, on the policy issue here, has that really helped you, though, in some ways to get a, have a more impactful message with politicians about the need to increase the rates of things like uh, welfare, like New Start, or even the deeming rate, for that matter, where a mm. lot of people who are quite old rely upon that deeming rate mm. as a way of getting um, the pension or having access to different services out there? Mm. Has that really helped you out with that sort of that narrative, that discussion? I think there has been um, a lot of momentum to, to raise the rate of, of New Start. One thing that's a little bit concerning to me is that there's been a, a campaign in the sector to raise the rate of New Start by $75 a week. And I've always been a bit a bit concerned about that figure because it's actually at the lower the lower end of what it needs to be. Um, um, it's lower than what some MPs have now come out and identified as, you know, what the minimum needs to be. And there's always a danger when you go out and you campaign and you put a number on something that it, it doesn't become – Instead of becoming a minimum, it becomes the ambit claim. So I think yeah. um, it's great to see the momentum and um, I think it's been really useful. I think what happened in the last week was a whole lot of people going out and meeting with their local MPs and that's driven some of the new commentary that we've seen and that's been yeah. really good. I think the danger now is that we end up, if we do get a raise, we get a raise in the rate that's still hugely inadequate and New Start continues to stagnate then for you know 
Yeah. <laughs> Another two decades. That would be that would be a really terrible outcome. I think it raises the question too about um, how we define what's you know what someone needs in modern society to to yeah. live on. You raised that point before about communications about yeah. um, you know the what you know four hundred dollars a week. You said was mm. a term six in my head now for for a while, but. Um, in my head too, like things like having the ability to access the internet, have a mobile phone, mm. I take those things for granted, right? But at the same time, I remember a time in my life when I was very poor. And um, I still remember the fact that my parents remind me of this, I'm the first in my family to go to university and I don't come from a very advantaged background. And so I know what that impact means to someone to mm. have, it's like a lifeline though. And I think that's the thing. That getting away from the money, the money puts on a discussion like this when you say $75 a week, like you said, mm. I think it really categorizes and puts something in a nice little box in a way of how people approach a subject matter. And I think we've seen yeah. that a bit this week in other issues as well. Yeah, I think the danger, um, and I mean, you, you would know this studying political marketing is when, when you lowball a figure like that, it does become the ambit claim, yeah. you know, and I think, yeah, <laughs> I think that the there, there is a bit of a danger there, and I think there are some there are some factors that are unique to the Australian welfare system that make it um, really hard to to raise a rate like this. We did, I actually did some research last year for Anglicare about Australian attitudes to poverty, and one of the things that we found is that um, welfare systems that are highly targeted. Um, are highly vulnerable and they're they're much less popular. Um, so countries that have very universal welfare um, welfare systems, the safety net um, is a lot harder to change. It's a lot harder to mess with because you're giving stuff to middle class people as well as people um, you know people who are in the greatest need. And it's yeah. much harder to take things away from middle class people. And you look yeah. at the Australian political system, and the two most popular aspects of our welfare system are the age pension. Um, which is not totally universal, but most people, um, you know, aside from the very wealthiest retirees, do get either a pension or a part pension or Medicare re- um, rebates, um, and they go to everyone regardless of what level of income you've got, and they've been the hardest aspects of the welfare system um, to to change and mess around with. And then you look at something like, you know, New Start Youth Allowance-related payments, and they've stagnated for 25 years, and they're also the most targeted, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, and, and on that point too about how you talk about what's been targeted, that, mm. that language I think is very um, emotive language. Mm. And Shirley Leach, we saw this during the election campaign about the use of very emotive language, I think sometimes can go too far and borders on, in a way, hate speech or, or you know, speech which is then festering away there on social media, which allows people to express themselves in ways they probably shouldn't. And we see in some really bad circumstances, how that then develops into actions on the street, be it an act of terrorism or other ways. And we, we noticed that this week with the Facebook and Google and the other social media giants out there really confronting the fact that they are providing a broadcast platform for a lot of the speech that happened. And getting back to what May talked about, about how people in poverty and on these welfare um, recipients, uh, the the way they're categorised by some people, I think on social media, has allowed you know sometimes that dehumanisation perspective to creep into our narrative now in politics more than it ever has. In fact, I think 2019 was the most negative and hateful election I've come across for a long time. Well, you, yeah, I don't think you're wrong there. 
It's interesting to see what's been happening in Australia around this growth of hate speech, particularly since we experienced an Australian on the 15th of March taking out um, some guns which were emblazoned with the names of uh, some fascist war criminals and killing 51 people. I think Australia's been reeling from that. And it was interesting that because Morrison came out immediately um, uh, to attack the social media companies, to attack the platforms. He called for action at the G20. Uh, he put in place a major task force. He, he basically rounded up all of the major digital platforms, the ISPs, the heads of all the relevant government agencies, the attorney general, you know, within 10 days of that attack in Christchurch and put them on notice that Australia was not actually going to sit quietly by while hate speech and particularly speech that was to do with violent extremism was allowed to flourish online. And so it was it was great to see that report come out um, just a week ago. Um, I mean, the big focus in the report is on technical solutions and... Um, I'm a bit um, nervous about this over-emphasis on algorithms and believing that, uh, for example, just putting in controls uh, in the background is going to solve all the problem because I think it's much bigger than that. Mm. The the one aspect of the report that I was really interested in, I mean, obviously as a researcher and an academic, was the fact that the report actually does call for uh, the government and for the, in fact, the social media companies to actually fund an awful lot more research into understanding what is actually happening. I think if you take a step back from it all and, and going back to your point about, you know, hate speech around the poor, hate speech around anyone who puts their heads up, the silencing particular, in particular of women, um, you know, any woman who puts her um, head up above the parapet is and parapet of social media finds herself uh, attacked, um, threatened with violence and rape. Um, and there has been a widespread silencing of female voices in social media because of the, this absolutely mm. abhorrent behaviour. Um, you know, I think um, we have to take that step back and think, well, what on earth is going on? What is this strange new thing that's happened? Where is all of this hate speech coming from? And as a society, what kind of controls do we actually want to put in place? Because if you flip that over, I mean, the other side of this has been, there's been a lot of commentary around the raids on the ABC, you know, um, Don Oakes and Sam Clark at the ABC were have been targeted for their piece on Australia's uh, special forces and the unlawful killings in Afghanistan. Um, you know, we've seen fingerprinting, you know, of journalists and their travel records being sought from Qantas and so forth. And um, there's a parliamentary joint committee um, at the moment on the exercise of law enforcement and press freedom. So how do you balance that? How do you balance freedom of speech while also trying to prevent um, violent and extreme material from being circulated online? Um, and prevent um, individuals from being, um, you know, harassed out of the, the public sphere um, off social media platforms because of these kinds of violent um, threats. No, you got a good good yeah. point there. I think Anthony Albanese raised the point during the election campaign um, about how he felt that um, social media feeds were in some ways becoming echo chambers and the effect that was having on political debate and narrative 
and and how policy was being developed as well. And his fear was, I think, quite well <laughs> formed there about um, that we, if we don't be careful, we're going to stop hearing things we don't like hearing. But at the same time, those things shouldn't be said in a way which excludes others from debates and from narratives, because then we're really getting down to only select groups in society have the ability and power to make you know speech and to have that freedom of speech without fear of consequence. Um, and it, it's a really good point you make too about women on social media. I know there's a great book out by a Canberra author called Ginger Gorman called Troll Hunting. Um, great read. I know Ginger, so she put a lot of work into it. But at the same time, what she tells me about what she went through, the price she had to pay personally for writing that book, the amount of online hate she now gets is incredible. It's quite intense. Um, but it, I think it's really indicative of the fact that we've moved past in a way trolling was like a disguise for letting these people get away with certain behaviours, which we now recognise as alienating certain groups in our society. So it's it's an issue noted by the New Zealand Prime Minister when she was here as well in the past week. Um, and I think she's now become another leader for obvious reasons because she's seen the um, what happens when you allow hate speech to go unchecked which is 51 people lose their lives for doing nothing more than worshipping a religion. So it's um, it's an issue I think the government's going to have to keep an eye on going into the future. At the same time, as you said, Shirley, um, about the increase in national security laws now, only this week we're seeing debate happen in Parliament on new laws on national security, including um, ASIO having the power to detain people for up to a week without charge. So it, it makes you wonder where these laws can stop and how does ASIO decide who should be detained on national security matters if the AFP are carrying out raids on journalists. And um, in particular, the raid here in Canberra where they went through someone's underwear drawer is just absolutely amazing. And I, I've already had people ask me from overseas about what's going on over here. Um, so I'm going to ask you this question now is do you think democracy is just a brand name we use in Australia or do you think it still exists? <laughs> That's a really interesting question and I know it sounds like a long bow but while you know while while you were saying everything that you just said um you know about the 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 raids on journalists and the like I was thinking a little bit about some of the work um our sector, the, the community and NGO sector, but also um, journalists and others were doing um, in the previous term of parliament because of some national security legislation that had been proposed that uh, would have impacted charities and their ability to um, speak out and do do advocacy, community advocacy, um, you know, which is really important to us, mm. obviously, you know, yep. Anglicare Australia, but, you know, a, a lot of others. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about a little bit since the election, because we're half expecting those laws to be reproposed now, <laughs> now post-election. Um, and for me, I think it's it's part of the same fight. You know, what, what's happening to journalists now, what's happening to um, or, you know, what's likely to happen to charities in the community sector. Um, I think it's it's really important that we all we all work together and we don't we don't lose sight of the fact that this is happening to and, and whistleblowers too. I mean that yeah. that was a really um, another really interesting thing. Um that came through during those ABC raids and also um, what happened to the uh, journalist Annika Smithhurst was this was about the AF the AFP building a case against the whistleblower as well and trying to stop people from yeah. you know who work in the public service and have access to this to this information um, from from sharing it if they think it's in the public interest and so I think um, 
it's important to focus on all of those things. I think what what's happening to journalists is troubling, and I think it's it's part of the same um, phenomena. I think it's it's not separate to what's happening um, to advocacy organisations. It's not separate to what's happening to whistleblowers. It's it's a really interesting point you talk about there too about um, and it got me thinking about a marketing term we call share a voice and share a voice in a in a conversation about an issue or about a, usually it's about a brand to be honest with you. But it's now coming to politics. We talk about share of voice and we see, you know, some people have bigger voices than others in a certain conversation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean, though, that share of voice equates to really what share of voice should you really have? Because mm-hmm. I think when you talk about your your sector in particular, that's one of your issues you face is not just getting your voice out there. It's mm-hmm. getting it out there in such a way it has an impact, but it isn't drowned out by other voices, be they just someone who's got a username and 20,000 followers on Twitter because of whatever following they have from the far right or far left, whatever the case is, mm. it's getting out there clean in a way and having that impact really hit home, I think, to make that sort of voice be heard the right way mm. in the corridors of power here in Canberra. Absolutely. And when there are laws proposed um, to, you know, stop people from doing that or when there are, you know, you, you might know that um, environmental NGOs are now regulated differently to other mm. NGOs in terms of how they, you know, I think when you do that, it's it's all about um, privileging voices in the, in the debate that actually already have access. So when when someone like Anglicare Australia or, or you know another another charity or whatever, when if we're not able to speak, you know we're speaking on behalf of people who are disadvantaged, um, you know people who are structurally disempowered, and mm. then you've got other voices, you know, and they've got completely unre- unrestricted ability um, to to you know um, so in the in the environment debate. I think that's troubling what's happening to environmental NGOs because you're privileging resource companies and mining companies and people who are doing, you know, extractive industries and polluting industries and their their speech is totally unrestricted. I think it's it's a silencing of, of yeah. voices that are have no other way of getting into the debate. That's what happens when you when you silence NGOs and charities. So to you, Shirley Leach, do you think this means now we need to have regulations put in place where we allow these organisations to have a voice, as it were, but have it heard cleanly without sort of impact from other ones out there? So maybe regulation on social media giants to a point where the algorithms have to change to allow um, groups or individuals to have an equal voice with others on the platforms. So in other words, we're not seeing someone who's got the right sort of cash and the right sort of influence promote their post or have an ad appear on the site, as it were, which is becoming now the new thing. If, if I can't influence the algorithm, I'll influence the ad. Do you think social media giants need to step up to the plate here a bit and go, you know what, we'll take the financial hit to allow people to have an equal voice in our platforms in such a way it encourages a free and fair discussion and debate? Look, I think we've got to have a big national conversation about what what kind of voices we actually want to feature. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Um, 
on social media, in our political debate and discourse, because we are heading in a very, very interesting direction at the moment. Um, if you take a step back and you think about, you know, how did this government campaign, um, what were the sort of dominant messages that uh, they brought into office with them? It was all about the world being a very frightening place full of very, very bad people um, there being a lot of really serious things to worry about out there, but that the government would look after you and keep you safe, but you were going to have to trust them. So it was all very vaguely worded, um, but there was fear created and the the, uh, the LNP was put up as the kind of solution to all of those fears. Uh, and since then, you've seen a continuation of that. Um, I mean, just this week, we've got, um, I think, the farm invaders legislation is up before Parliament. Now, that's a really interesting piece of legislation. It might not sound like it's got anything to do with social media, but in fact, it has. Because um, while I think um, the LNP has made a lot of political capital out of uh, you know, invasions of farms by protesters and, you know, the spectre of farming families being um, targeted by um, green extremists. Uh, if you actually look at that legislation, um, there are very serious penalties in there for those who are deemed to encourage um, farm invasion. And that would mean, for example, you, if you or I decided to say, Hey, everyone, there's going to be some action down in, you know, um, Canberra this weekend, um, through a post on our, uh, Facebook pages. That would be potentially captured under this legislation. Uh, Mark Dreyfus has, uh, come out and said this looks like creeping police state. And I have to say that on first reading, I would tend to agree with mm. him. There's also been a lot of commentary about how this, um, overlaps with existing laws. It does, um, but I think that the elements of it around those who are deemed to encourage um, take us another step towards um, limiting voices, um, particularly limiting voices of dissent, limiting voices that may be saying things that are unpopular um, with the uh, current government. Yeah, it's a good point to make that, that in our democracy, I think one of the things we have taken for granted is voice. And, um, you know, it's, it's becoming to me the most important issue in Australian politics is voice. Uh, a lot of people talk about other issues, I know, but to me, without having voices in our community, without hearing different voices, without having that freedom to hear a voice and to hear things which we may not like, we can't have policy development in this nation. We can't move forward. We can't, as the national anthem says, advance Australia. All right. On that note, we're going to take a break, everyone. So, Put the kettle on, um, go make yourself a cuppa. We'll be back shortly for the second half of Democracy Sausage. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. 
All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the second part of the Democracy Sausage. I hope your sausage is hot. The onion's there. Bit of sauce on top. I um, hope you haven't gone to a national hardware chain for it. Um, make one at home. More fun. All right. And joining us in the second half of the show is our next special guest, is Craig Emerson, former member for Rankin, which is um, a lovely neck of the woods. Have you ever got a chance to go to Rankin, the seat of Rankin, that is? Uh, Logan on the south side of Brisbane. I come from Queensland, so I know that area quite well. Um, it's a lovely spot to be. Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me on the show. And what are you doing at the moment? What are you up to? Uh, well, I'm doing a review of the election with Jay Weatherall for the ALP, but we've you know, not talking about that at this stage, and I know you're not asking me to do so, but that's pretty busy. And I continue to do a lot of economic consulting work. Uh, so they're the main things that keep me in trouble. And he's left out, by the way, folks, very busy on Twitter. Um, he's very, very active on Twitter. I know that because he follows me on Twitter. <laughs> I was shocked when he did. Um, but And those people out there who want to join our conversation on Twitter, you can do so using the hashtag... Uh, Democracy Sausage, and the username is at apps, A-P-P-S, Policy Forum, all one word. Wow, we have to get that changed. I'm a marketer. That's never got to work in my land. Um, the producer of the show is currently looking at me and giggling in a way. Um, he understands marketing talk. You have to love it. All right. So we ended the first half of the show as a great conversation we had towards the end there, particularly by Shelley Leach about um, the new farmers bill going through about protests. And it's funny that the um, it's it's been a more topical conversation the last seven days has been issues about the rural and regional um, communities, particularly we saw the Prime Minister with the drought summit, um, and which, by the way, in itself got a lot of criticism because evidently some people were left off the invite list. And the invite list was very hard to discern who'd been allowed to speak and attend and who wasn't. So I know some people who were very upset who felt like they were excluded from that conversation. So we've seen the government now talk about a $5 billion fund to be set up to help people who might be drought affected in the future. Craig Emerson, $5 billion. Now, the talk is it's coming from the infrastructure fund. Um, smart or not really smart? What's your opinion? Oh, droughts are defining characteristic of Australian bush. I come from the Australian bush and a drought-affected area, Baradine in northwest New South Wales. Um, look, I think we do want and support our farming community. Um, I think of the plight of the farmers, but I also think of the plight of the animals who uh, suffer and die, you know, agonising deaths in drought. So, uh, you know, we can't prevent them. They do seem to be getting more intense. That's not really my observation, but that of um, bureaus of meteorology and NASA and so on around the world. Uh, so I don't think we can look forward to a time where we'll be drought free. And so support for farming communities uh, is warranted. So what would you do if you were in that shoes of the Prime Minister right now? What is the number one step you think needs to be taken to, to really get this back on track? Well, the difficulty for the Australian bush is to ensure that um, agriculture in those areas is sustainable. Uh, and one hazard, the further you get out towards the desert, is that um, uh, you, know, you can find farming communities that rely on one good year in seven or five, and then income support in the rest of the time. So I think we need to have a look at um, how far out 
west, we extend our margin of cultivation because if it's in highly chancy areas, you know, very, very drought prone, uh, even when other parts are having good seasons, uh, then I do wonder, frankly, as to whether it makes sense to provide that ongoing uh, assurance that whether the seasons are good or bad, um, farmers will be able to survive. I don't suggest for a moment that they thrive, but I do wonder about whether we should be having a discussion about that. Immediately I say that, uh, there'll be a whole lot of farmers and farming organisations who will say that's a disgraceful comment, how dare you suggest um, that we should have any boundaries to uh, cultivation in this country, mm. but I don't see a lot of wheat and rice growing in the Simpson Desert. And I think it's a necessary conversation, to be honest with you. I think looking at the state of our rivers, and that's been a another big source of discussion and politics in the last 12 months, um, is looking at our river systems. And, and there was a viral video made by, I think, a 16-year-old girl. Um, I forget her name now, but it was on Facebook. It was just before the election. I think it was the week before the election, in fact. She put it out and I thought, wow, I'd vote for her in a, in a heartbeat because the way she talked about her community and the devastation being caused by a lack of water. Now, again, in an urban centre like Canberra or a big city, turn on the tap, the water's there. We take it for granted so much. You look around the world where major cities are running out of water, you get a sense we have to do something on a larger scale to change our way of living. So looking at um, crop production as part of that conversation, I think, but also part of that conversation, and I'm going to switch over to you, May, is that in your role with Anglicare, you probably see a lot of people come to you from rural communities. And I think one of the issues with rural communities as well is that sense of pride they have about not asking for help. And I think one of the difficulties the National Party is facing right now is recognising they can't have that narrative anymore of stereotyping people who are on welfare, who need welfare as being bludgers. It's a horrible term to use, and I think a lot of people in the in the rural communities are suffering and are looking for handouts. And some people say it's a silent epidemic in in rural communities. Is that mental anguish and mental suffering people are going through this time of the year? What is your organisation finding? Yeah, we are we are finding a lot of people um, in the bush doing it tough. But just to um, sort of go back one conversation to the one we were having before the break. Um, Actually, people in regional communities and farming communities are more likely to receive um, government income support and other payments than a whole lot of other people. And one of the things that's really interesting, going back to the point we were making earlier about universalism, um, is why do we speak about them and see them so differently um, to other people who are on welfare? Um, so I think that's something that, that's quite interesting. And I think the point that you're making about language is a really good one. We speak about people who are on um, New Side in the city completely differently to how we speak about people who might need a bit of a, you know, a bit of a handout um, in the bush differently. You know, they're resilient and part of a community. And I think um, anybody else who's experiencing a bit of poverty deserves the same respect. You know, they're they deserve credit for everything mm. they do for their community. Um, they're managing an impossible situation sometimes. So, um, yeah, I, I, not to disagree with you, but I, I, I also think that the way welfare is stigmatised also has a, a kind of flow-on effect to people who might be asking for help in the country as well because, as you say, Do you is, think on that, that, on that note there needs to be more policy development on that area with welfare in particular and in a way of looking at people as being quite unique and, and having different needs based upon where they live and who they are and the age they're at and all that type of thing. 
Do you, do you think that needs to be um, a, a lot more part of the conversation? In particular, I'm, I'm thinking here with the organisation is that mm. you, you cover so many people. Yeah. Um, surely there must be a need where government reaches out to you, not you reach out to government, and they say, hey, can you do this for us? Because you have a close connection and engagement with that community in particular. Yeah, we, we always support, um, you know, um, more kind of person-centred um, system that really takes into account um, what people are going through in their individual circumstances. And um, we don't do that hugely, <laughs> hugely yeah. well in Australia. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly I think that's... Um, that would be, I think, hugely beneficial, um, not just for the people themselves, but I think for our our perceptions and for the quality of the debate that we end up having about welfare and, and helping people who who need it, uh, because a big part of a big part of the problem um, with debate is that people are stripped of their individuality, and we couldn't possibly imagine ourselves in their um, shoes. So yeah, yeah I think I, I think this um, this conversation too touches on some some wider economic narratives we're seeing mm. play out right now. Mm. Um, that we're seeing not just two halves or, you know, I remember that term used by economists not so long mm. ago, and Craig, you might remember this term as well, having a two-speed economy. Mm. And when you use language like that, I think sometimes you've got to be very careful on how then it might be you, you feel as a person, mm. am I, you know, first speed or am I part of the, you know, Ferrari mm. or I'm the second-hand Kia? No mm. offence to either brand, by the way. Yeah. But um, Shirley Leach, what do you think of the use of language like this? Do you think hearing this language used in debates like um, you know economic debates and welfare debates, do you think in a way we're blunting the message too much? Do you think we're like taking the language or using the language as a form of shielding what is really happening behind the scenes? Do you think there's a better way we can communicate these sort of narratives in politics? Well, I mean, obviously there is. I mean, this is one Australia, not... Um um, not a two-speed economy. We're all actually part of the same economy. It's just that some people are obviously benefiting more from the economy as it stands at the moment than others. Um, look, just um, just thinking more about this um, drought um, package, though, uh, and I and I think Craig raised a really interesting point when he said it's not just about it's not just about thinking about how how farmers are dealing with um, issues right now. I mean, obviously, if people are suffering as a community, we've got to reach out and help them. I mean, that should go without saying in Australia. But there is a there is another issue, and it's a much longer term issue. And if you look at what's happening here at ANU, there's a huge amount of research going on into developing um, uh, better sustainable farming practices, and not just here at ANU, in, in universities right across Australia. Because we recognise that with climate change uh, and with uh, the worsening droughts and with no likelihood that that is going to reverse any time in the future, if ever, uh, then as a nation, uh, we have to figure out how we deal better with droughts and how we actually um, uh, put in place much more sustainable farming f- um, practices so that we have um, a food supply going into the future and so that we don't get these sort of boom and busts and praying for rain episodes because that's no way to run an agricultural sector. Mm. Craig, what are your thoughts on developing a better narrative around some of these economic terms and language to make it a more, I suppose, inclusive conversation with a wider part of society more than exclusive where it's just held by people who have the knowledge or the understanding of these different economic terms and then other people feel left out? Well, more empathy would be welcome. Uh, And I do think people um, who have found themselves in really difficult circumstances um, through... um, 
mental health problems, drug addiction, uh, long-term unemployment, uh, experiencing domestic violence as kids. You know, these a lot of people carry scars into their teenage years and into their adulthood and um, sure there's some terrible behaviour exhibited by those uh, people uh, and I'm not saying that that are of any comfort to the victims, you know, of, of say violence by them but we don't seem to have as a community as much empathy as we could in understanding the circumstances which have led people, you know, to behave that way. And um, I know that looking at the Productivity Commission report and some work we've done ourselves, uh, there's uh, three quarters of a million people who um, at any given time have been in poverty for a long time and they're stuck. Mm. Uh, so imagine the financial situation they get into, they get a bad credit record, they can't get uh, com uh, uh, commercial housing, uh, that they, they have habits that lead them to go to payday lenders and the spiral just goes down and down. I think what we need there is, from what a better word, uh, phrase, wraparound services, intensive services. Mm. And I know in communities such as in Logan City, there are such good services, but it's not a method. It's not a, a nationwide method. It's people trying different things and some work and some don't. But we need to keep trying those and have a notion to add a little bit of an economic term investing in these people, you know, yeah. to, to break these cycles of of de um, dependency and so on. I mean, in a country like ours, we've got 750,000 people just in abject poverty and shocking circumstances. We can and should do better. Yeah. One of the... Um you made the point about empathy um, earlier and the, the need for more empathy. And I, um, it was a, a point that was really well made. And going back to the study that I mentioned earlier that we did in Anglicare on, on social attitudes, one of the really interesting things that we found um, was that people from rural and regional areas have much more sympathetic attitudes towards people who are in poverty and people who are getting benefits. Um, and that was, uh, you know, across the board, um, taking into account all of their other demographics across the board, much more sympathetic. And I think um, it probably comes from... Um, we don't know exactly why. We think it's probably because um, of, you know, social capital and better connected communities, but it's probably also because they've got an appreciation of the role of luck and circumstance, um, yeah, in people's lives. And it, it's funny. It's, I think it was really one of the things, really important things for the election campaign was that, that we all feel the need, I think, across Australia for increased social investment and increased social capital in different, be it different organisations from your local surf club to your local sporting community group, whatever the case is. But even hearing with rural communities, for example, the fact that a pub is everything to them and yet in capital cities we have lockout laws where, you know, restrict how people might go to pubs, but in small communities we see that role being different. I think it really touches on this point um, and we're seeing this, I think, across the nation a bit is that we need more social investment and social capital. And I, you know, something like, the, for example, the Banking Royal Commission, um, what it touched on was that, um, we also, you know, in a way we're forgetting that some people out there don't have the same knowledge we do. So financial literacy is another issue, mm. which I think if we tackle that in some ways and gave people financial knowledge, I think a lot of these issues, we'd cut them off before they became significant issues in people's lives. So it'd be great to see some initiatives there in politics. Um, 
regardless of where it's from, to be honest, um, on putting more investment into these sort of financial literacy programs or letting people know about some very simple things. And it, when you hear someone like Marcus Padley, who's a stockbroker um, in Sydney, top end of town, talk about in one hour how he could change someone's life through financial literacy programs, it makes you realise if he's saying we should do it, that we need to do it a lot more investment across the board. All right. Um, we're going to have the surprise question from me. So um, the surprise question is a question no one's going to see coming. We're going to wrap the show up now. Um, surprise question is, um, what is your favourite album to chill out to when you do some work? Simple as that. There we go. Oh, gosh. What did you make me host for, Craig? <laughs> uh, it's an old one. Um, <laughs> dire Straits making movies. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a great album. Wow. There we go. 1980, I believe. Wow. Well, I would have gone for Brothers in Arms for Die Straits, but... Yeah, well, this this was before Brothers in Arms. Yeah. Wow. It was their first big album, yeah. Have you seen them perform live? I have, in Canberra. Wow. Mark Knopfler bashing it out on the guitar. He's fantastic How lucky are you? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow, that is that is amazing. That's a great story. May? Don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, just, oh, gosh, Spotify, I was totally unprepared Spotify for the... <laughs> All right, Shirley. Uh, right at the moment, probably the the Strombellas, the Canadian band. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That, I, I'm, and what sort of music are they? I, I'm not familiar with them, so forgive me. Oh, look, they're, they're fantastic. Check them out. Uh, Google Just them? check them out, yeah. I'll Google them, Spotify them. Yeah. Okay. Um, for me personally, um, I'll go for that South London chill factor and, and go for Massive Attack or Faithless, you know, just put them on. Excellent choices. Yeah, yeah. If, or if I'm really feeling like a bit of power and a bit of, you know, anger there when I need to write, um, it's it's got to be Midnight Oil in some way, shape or form. Go the oils. Go the oils. I've seen them many times in concert. They're so. in the middle of Australia right now, aren't they? I know, yeah. Yeah, they did that one at um, the biggest sand dune in the Simpson Desert. Yeah, he's a dear friend of mine, Peter Garrett. Oh, is yeah. he? Oh, yeah. <sighs> we used to sit next to each other in I, I'm time. in awe of you, Craig, already. He I, taught I, me to sing. Really? Can you no. sing for us now? A <laughs> tune. I'd, I'd I have been, I have been be banned from singing by Julia Gillard. She banned the entire cabinet. Uh, based on my singing effort, with the exception, she gave an exemption to Peter Garrett, which I thought was pretty wise. But that's wise. Yeah, I can, I can agree with that one. Yeah, it's not too bad. All right, we're going to end there. So um, thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Democracy Sausage. And a big thank you to my special guest today, May Shirley Craig. Thank you so much for your time here in the studio. Um, that's it for this week. And we'll see you again next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.